I think I was always interested in trying to build a system that could understand the 3D world around a device and enable intelligent action. Some people think of SLAM as purely that localization problem, whereas for me it's this ever-growing target where what we want is a robot to build a representation of the scene around it. What we're really trying to do in spatial AI, I think, is to invert that process to go from the raw images back to that sort of scene graph, which I think is what, in the end, really enables intelligent action. Welcome to Unboxing AI, the podcast about the future of computer vision, where industry experts share their insights about bringing computer vision capabilities into production. I'm Gil Elbaz, DataGen co-founder and CTO. Yala, let's get started. This week, I'm happy to host Andrew Davison, Professor of Robotic Vision at the Department of Computing, Imperial College London. In addition, he's the director and founder of the Dyson Robotics Laboratory. Andrew pioneered the cornerstone algorithm for robotic vision, gaming, drones, and many other applications. Yes, you know what I'm referring to, SLAM, simultaneous localization and mapping, and has continued to develop the SLAM direction in substantial ways since then. His research focus is in improving and enhancing SLAM in terms of dynamics, scale, detail level, efficiency, semantic understanding of real-time video, and more. Under Andrew's guidance, SLAM has evolved into a whole new domain of spatial AI, leveraging neural implicit representations and the suite of cutting-edge methods to create a full, coherent representation of the world from video. Welcome to Unboxing AI. I'm so happy to have you here with us, Andrew. Oh, pleasure to be here. So I would love to maybe take a step back and really dive into the concept and story around SLAM and the first maybe versions of this, starting out back in the 90s, really. If you could tell us how you got into this and what were the first steps that you took in the space? Sure. So I started my PhD in in 1994, having previously done an undergraduate degree in physics so I had a mathematical background. I'd always had an interesting in uh, computers. I'd done quite a bit of programming on my own time. And I was thinking about doing research, but there was nothing particular in physics that attracted me to do a PhD. And I heard that there was a robotics group in the Department of, of Engineering in Oxford where I was studying. So I invited myself over and ended up doing a PhD supervised by Professor David Murray, and really what he was working on at the time was active vision. So this means robotic cameras, which could be controlled and moved and pointed. They'd done quite a lot of work on using an active vision system to track moving targets. And this was a stereo active head, it was called, called Yorick, which was mounted on a fixed base and they would track things uh, moving past it. But really the start of my project was a new version of Yorick, which was a bit smaller and which was able to be mounted on a mobile robot platform. And really the start of my PhD was what can we do with this? And people had, had tried to do a few things with it. And most obviously, you know, active vision things like while the robot is moving, use the active cameras to track some kind of goal or target and therefore have a steering behavior. But what David and I were interested in was how could you enable more sort of long-term intelligent action from a robot that had this visual capability? And that really led us quite soon into mapping. How was this device actually understand the scene around it in a more persistent way? So how could it use these cameras to, to make 
some sort of map of, of landmarks uh, around it. And that was what really led me into to SLAM. Wow, that's super interesting. And, and I think that bringing together both localization and mapping is not necessarily trivial, right? Until the robot can actually move around complex environments, it's not, you don't need to do both at the same time. But once you actually combine this new hardware paradigm in a way, it leads to new use cases and needs in the algorithm side of things, which I think is quite fascinating to see it also happen together. And so to get a bit of context, I would love to understand what was the first version of Slam? What was it able to do? And I'd love to maybe dive from there into Mono Slam in 2003. And afterwards, we can talk more about the modern Slam variants. Sure, yeah. So I think as soon as we started thinking about this robot building a, a map of the space around it, you realize quite soon that these two problems of localization and mapping are very much tangled together. There's loads of work on either part of that. So localization is the problem of estimating where you are, given that you have a map. And you can think about that. It's, you know, it's a triangulation sort of problem. So if you have something like a camera that can measure uh, the angles to some points in the world and you know where those points are. You might also, so we were actually using a stereo camera, so you get some observation of depth as well from stereo. So it's a question of then working out where you are. And then there's the converse question of mapping. If I know where I am, let's say I'm walking around a space and I have a GPS uh, sensor giving me accurate position and then I notice some things around me and I want to try and build them into a map. You know, I can read off where I currently am. I can maybe add on the distance that I've measured onto that and then I can put things into a map. But but when you're trying to do both of those two things at once, the two estimates become very tangled together. And to really make progress on on that, you need to think about it as a as a joint estimation problem. So we started to discover the literature essentially in probabilistic estimation. So at the time, things like Kalman filtering were, were very much uh, the tools that we were using. There were other great researchers around the world starting to get interested in, in these problems. You know, we were inspired by people like Hugh Durant White, uh, John Leonard, who'd worked on, on similar problems in the past, and really started to try and put that sort of system together and so the earliest versions of the SLAM systems that, that we built were very, very sparse feature-based maps of systems. So we would, when we were mainly working on, on indoor robots, we would try and make a map of a room that a robot was moving around with maybe 30 or 40 landmarks. So these were very sparse points like the corner of a door automatically found by the robot as things that might make good long-term landmarks many, many measurements of those as the robot moved and try and get a good probabilistic estimate of their locations. So we produced what, you know, one of the very first systems that actually worked in real time to do this, certainly one of the very first that was using vision as, as the primary sensor. But then there were several other groups around the world back in the 90s that, that were doing quite similar work, usually with different sorts of sensors like sonar or, you know, early versions of, of laser uh, range finders as well. Back then, did you think about vision as the kind of ultimate sensor in a way because of how similar it is to how humans perceive the world? Or was that by chance that you were working on vision uh, for, in that aspect? I think I always had an idea that it would be the, the long-term thing that we would end up using. So yeah, clearly there's that biological 
argument that humans and animals seem to be able to navigate spaces using primarily vision. So that was very convincing. And the spaces were also built for us in a way, right? They were built yeah. for visual systems in many ways. Yeah, uh, Definitely. If, if you're thinking about indoor robotics and, and systems that, that will operate alongside humans, of course. And then I was working, I've always kind of had one foot in computer vision and one foot in robotics. And I was working in a group where most of the research was in computer vision. I actually happened into this amazing environment in in Oxford, where there was there was our active vision group, we had Andrew Zisman's um, visual geometry group in the room upstairs. We had Andrew Blake's group doing visual tracking in the room next door. So I was surrounded by people interested in, in computer vision, and in particular, the sort of geometrical computer vision that was going on at the time, which was very much the same sort of problems of cameras moving through spaces, estimating camera positions, estimating the, the positions and geometry of, of things in the scene. I could see how that was progressing and how it was such a, a big thing. And I think our kind of niche and interest in particular was how to make that real time, how to actually put it onto a robot. That was where we thought there was a special uh, opportunity. Very cool. And can you tell us a little bit about Monoslam? So the algorithm from 2003? Yeah. So after my PhD, so I, I finished in in 2003, we built this uh, robotic slam system. I then actually went to do a two-year postdoc in, in Japan, where I continued to work on active vision for slam in one of the national research labs over there. And I, and I think it was really during that time that I thought what we developed was was very interesting. I think one thing was it was hard to get people interested in it because it was obviously quite a complicated robotic <laughs> system. It was not something that other people could easily, you know, re-implement or even try something similar to because it seemed like it, you needed this really kind of complicated hardware. And so one thing that was very much inspiring me towards Monoslam was, can we strip away the hardware here? Can we do it with the simplest hardware system possible, which would be just a camera and a computer. So that was always in, in my mind. Could you do real-time slam just by plugging in a webcam to a standard computer? And I think the other thing on my mind was, you know, having interacted with all these computer vision people, trying to move into a world that they had to take an interest in, had to pay attention <laughs> to. And they, they were, you know, working purely with, with images and showing what you could do there. So yeah, the reason to simplify the hardware was for both of those reasons. But but anyway, so actually making that work took me quite a few years. So between finishing my PhD and then original version of Monoslam published in 2003 was a five-year period because there were quite a lot of technical challenges to solve. So because we didn't have a robot, first of all, some of the things that make it easier with a robot were gone. So a robot was moving on a 2D ground plane. That was one strong assumption we always had. Even though the map was always in 3D, the robot motion was always in 2D. Also, we had robot odometry. So you can count wheel turns and you've got some pretty reasonable estimate of where your robot is before you even look at the images. So in order to replace those things, first of all, I had to learn much more about you know 3D how do you properly model 3D motion of a camera, rotations? We used a kind of smooth motion model 
in monoslam. So what do I know about the motion of a camera without the odometry? I've got some knowledge just based on an assumption that it moves in a fairly smooth way. And then we wanted this system also to work fast. So the camera's moving around at, you know, at some handheld speed, or it might be later on attached to a humanoid or a wearable system. So we needed to run 30 frames per second was always my uh, target. So how are we going to do that? And that was interestingly where an idea from the earlier work with active cameras really came in. So even though we were not controlling the direction of the camera in Monoslam, like we were in the active camera system, what we could control was the processing. So we had this concept of active selection of measurements. So whereas with the active camera, you had to really think about where you were going to point the camera, which feature to measure at each time step. In Monoslam, we could control the sort of processing focus. So we would, on each new frame, think about which features are likely to be visible here and then make a prediction of where they're going to be and then specifically search small regions of the image. That was the thing that really allowed us to make this system run fast. So the outcome of all of that was, yeah, this system we could demo, which I could just handhold a camera, wave it around in a room, do real-time slam, build a map. It was you know somewhat more detailed than in the earlier days. So we, maybe we would have 100 landmark features in a room. We could track the position of the camera maybe to you know a few centimeters accuracy, something like that. But that was good enough to really prove, I think, that we were onto something uh, interesting. And, and one of the things I really did with Monoslam was it was all about the live demo. And I would try and show this demo to as many people as I could. And that was where a lot of the application interest really came from. So people realized, oh, I could put this on a vacuum cleaner robot. I could put it on an augmented reality uh, uh, system and, and track its motion, that kind of thing. I'd love to dive even more into the applications themselves because they are very, very wide and it is extremely interesting. I mean, the first applications that you guys were looking at, what were they? Were they really around cleaning robots or were they around something something else? So at the time we were building Monoslam, I think I had a fairly broad view about what the applications could be. So certainly robotics was always the primary interest. And in Japan, for instance, when I'd been working there, there was a big group working on humanoid robots. And we were really thinking, okay, how would we give this robot a scene understanding uh, capability? And a general 3D SLAM system seemed like what it needed. But there were other people that were around that were very inspiring in, in terms of application. So one of my colleagues in, in Oxford was uh, Walterio Mayol uh, Cuevas, and he was building uh, wearable vision system. So he actually built these collar-based, so it was a collar that you wore that had a little camera system on it, and it was actually even motorized, and it could move and point in in different directions. So kind of the forerunner of a lot of recent, you know, re-interest again in egocentric uh, vision. So that could be some sort of assistive device which could help a human, you know, maybe some non-expert in, in a domain was, was getting sort of advice on how to build something or how to dismantle something from this assistive device. So that was another another thing. And yeah, and then as I said, as we went around just demoing this system, you know, more and more people would come up to us with with ideas about what could be done with it. So for me, the, the most concrete 
thing that came out of that was when I spoke to uh, researchers at Dyson, who at the time were working actually on robot vacuum cleaners. So they'd actually been interested in robot vacuum cleaners for, for a long time, but had this idea that their robot should be better than a random bounce system, which was what you could get at the time from companies like uh, iRobot. They wanted a system that could really clean a room systematically, you know, know what it had cleaned and what it hadn't, know when it had finished and be able to, you know, pass each part of the floor exactly once. So that was very motivating for, for SLAM. And the fact that I was able to show them this real-time SLAM system that worked with a single camera, again, just allows you to think, well, that could be something that we could make cheap enough to actually put into a consumer product. So I ended up then working very closely with, with Dyson for, for a number of years after that to help them design the SLAM system within their first uh, robot vacuum cleaners. Yeah, in many cases, you know, lowering the barrier of use for some of these larger algorithms, these more complex algorithms, suddenly enables these new waves of applications. And it's completely amazing to think that beforehand, it was just too heavy, it wasn't practical, wasn't good enough. You invested five years, a lot of effort in really improving and iterating and creating this initial algorithm and, and showing it to the public in such a kind of front-facing way, in such a forward-looking demo. That's really, really powerful. I think that it's also quite interesting that you did it so early on, back in 2003, I'm sure that there, not every algorithm had a fully working demo that was with a handheld camera that other people could also use and play with. That's very much akin to things that we're seeing now in 2022, that you have these online demos that can be worked with and played with, and you can actually see the results. So doing that 20 years prior is, is incredible. I would love to maybe, with respect to SLAM, touch a little bit on the modern variants of SLAM. So Back then, we had a small amount of key points in a room, single camera. We don't have that many assumptions, but you did mention assumptions around a uniform height for some of the applications. What are the more modern variants of SLAM? What do they give us? What are the assumptions there? I looked at a dense semantic SLAM prior to this, SLAM based on event cameras, which is also super interesting for me. And then the real-time learned representations for real-time monocular SLAM that also was extremely interesting. If you could touch on some of those, that'd be great. So there's been so much going on uh, uh, since that time. So one thing that's clearly happened is SLAM has become productizable in various areas. So there's elements of SLAM technology that have definitely gone into things like autonomous driving. Uh, I've never personally worked in that area, but things I know more about so, you know, consumer robotics, AR, VR systems, drones pretty much all, all use SLAM, yeah, drones. So, and all sorts of emerging robotics type of applications. So interestingly, the way that those systems work, mostly if the main interest is, you know, really accurate motion estimation, the methods I would say are not that different from the ones that we were using 20 years ago or, or, or so. So, of course, there, there have been many, many uh, kind of developments and improvements. The way that you detect and track the key points, the way that you do the probabilistic estimation behind the scenes, the way that you will fuse it with other sensors and especially inertial sensors have turned out to be 
super important in doing general visual slam well. Th- those are all you know developments which have come in in the more recent uh, years. But they're sort of you know super high quality slam system that is, for instance, now built into an iPad or is running on on a drone from Skydio or, or DJI or, or something like that. The main sort of stuff behind that is quite similar to the sort of feature-based geometric estimation type uh, SLAM system. So meanwhile, in the research world, and I think gradually moving towards applications, is this vision that SLAM can be about much more than just estimating position and increasingly about discovering more and more useful information about the world that can actually be used for higher level behavior or or intelligence of things like robots. So then you have the concept of dense mapping where you're not just trying to build a sparse set of landmarks, you're trying to find a full detailed geometric map of the scene. And then also semantic scene understanding where you're trying to understand objects, their locations and context and and all of those things. You know, I I would say work in those areas is still very much uh, ongoing how to do it well, how to do it accurately, how to do it efficiently. There's lots of people try, trying things all, all, yeah, all the yeah. time. We've seen in the past, so we've seen both a big push from the companies working on AR, VR, for yeah. example, pushing very, very hard on, on the capabilities of SLAM. We, of course, we generate synthetic data. So uh, we've also in the past worked with some of these companies and we've helped them create uh, different 3D synthetic environments that are fully labeled and in full 3D ground truth to help also improve their SLAM systems. So we started working on it like around probably 2018. We had our first projects around SLAM. Since then, we've seen a lot of different amazing progress happen, uh, especially with the kind of combination of these SLAM-based algorithms and deep learning coming together in a kind of coherent way. So like key points now are found with deep neural networks and many times uh, the descriptions of these key points are described with features that are extracted from deep neural networks. And so this is, this is an extremely kind of interesting domain. When we talk about SLAM and we're talking about localization and mapping, so the map you mentioned, semantic understanding as well as the 3D environment, but what is like the ideal map? When we look forward in time, what is the ideal SLAM system supposed to be? Yeah, certainly some something I've, I'm thinking about all, all the time and still don't have a good answer to. So recently I've started using this term spatial AI to describe the thing that I'm interested in, which in my mind is not really different from what I was always interested in. It's still, I think I was always interested in trying to build a system that could understand the 3D world around a device and, and enable intelligent action. It's just, yeah, some people think of SLAM as purely that localization problem. Whereas for me, it's this ever-growing target where what we want is a robot to build a representation of, of the scene around it. So that word representation, I, I think, is is crucial. So what are the properties of, the, of that representation of the world that you would really like to have? So I think it should be geometric and and semantic i believe that you know a lot of the things we would like robots to do require some sort of persistent close to 3d representation so that this is always a kind of point of of discussion in in ai maybe in embodied ai in general can you just train a system end to end to do tasks 
and maybe you can in, in the very long term, but I would strongly say that I think about something like a robot that might be able to clear up a kitchen, think about what it would need to understand about that scene in order to, you know, let's say repetitively move backwards and forwards, pick up all the cutlery and put them in the right place. It's very hard for me to imagine a system like that operating without something, you know, close to a 3D model of that scene being stored and updated. And and that's not to say that I believe it should be, you know, a millimeter precise representation. I actually think of it as something much more, you know, maybe locally precise, but globally more sort of soft and uh, and graph-like, which I think maps to our human sort of experience of understanding places. You know, when you're looking at that scene right in front of you, I do think you have a very detailed, maybe even millimeter precision understanding of where those objects in front of you are. And you can think about, you know, really tricky, novel things that you could do with the objects in front of you. And you can sort of mentally simulate that scene. Whereas as soon as you turn away from part of the scene, I think it fades down to something much more, you know, soft and gruff-like. My vision of the sort of representation we're trying to build is something like an object kind of scene graph with probably, you know, locally quite precise information globally something a bit softer so one one of my former phd students actually renato salas moreno he had this interesting thing something you'll often hear is computer vision is is inverse graphics and he would say no i I think computer vision is like inverse video game development so given that so he'd actually worked in the video game industry before coming to to do a phd and if you're a video game designer, you know, laying out a, a level in some 3D game, you know, you have a big set of 3D assets. You would, you know, design the rooms, you would lay out, you know, which sort of objects are going to be present in this room. And then the system can render it and, and give you photorealistic views. Somehow what we're really trying to do in spatial AI, I think, is sort of invert that process to go from the raw images back to that sort of scene graph, which I think is what in the end, really enables intelligent action. Very interesting. Yeah, there is. there are two points that are two things that I wanted to dive into. One is that you mentioned, kind of together with localization and mapping, you also mentioned simulation as something that was coherent. And it actually struck me as, as an interesting point. Like it could be that part of really understanding the scene, as you mentioned before, part of really understanding it is also the ability to simulate different scenarios within that scene. Maybe that holds a place in the future of these kind of slam systems or or semantic understanding of the environment in a way. That was just an interesting point that struck me. I will say that it seems to me that there is a big question around, do we want to really define an explicit scene graph representation? Or can it be an implicit representation that doesn't have any real queryable structure. So if we take, for instance, the graphics engines, for example, the way that they hold all of the information in them is super structured, right? It's something that we can program. It's something that is very well defined. And so we have a tree of, let's say, a person and it has eyeballs and it has irises and you can find the entire graph and understand all of the assets that make up that 3D simulated person, for example. And then on the flip side, we have systems like NERF that have these 
internal representations of 3D information that are represented within a neural network in a way that is much softer, much harder to query, but does actually hold semantic information in a strong way. And so maybe the question for you is, do you see that there's a need for an explicit representation or is this some kind of combination between Nerf and SLAM in a way as the future of of this uh, spatial AI space? Uh, yeah, that, that's an excellent question. I come from a background of sort of estimation and designed algorithms, probability and everything. Machine learning is, a, is actually a relatively new thing for me, but which, you know, we've very much been embracing uh, recently. So yeah, this question of, of, of explicit versus implicit representation, I find fascinating. And we've actually been working with these, you know, neural field methods like like NERF and trying to build SLAM systems out of them exactly for, for that reason that this whole question of how do you represent scenes has been very difficult and the obvious explicit ways of representing scenes like meshes or point clouds or, you know, grid-based sign distance functions or, you know, maybe explicit maps of CAD features, uh, you know, CAD models of objects, for instance, they, they all clearly have, have problems so this idea that you can represent a scene in a very general way with, with a neural network is fascinating. So the work that we've been doing, so we've had a couple of uh, systems, one called IMAP, which was a, a real-time neural field SLAM system, and then building on to, uh, from that recently, we had a, uh, some papers called Semantic NERF and iLabel. So in SLAM, I don't necessarily think that you want to build a photorealistic model of the scene. So when we saw NERF, it seemed kind of overkill somehow for scene understanding. But what we investigated was what if you try and simplify that a bit. So take a smaller network. So that's the, the main thing that, that IMAP does. It uses a, a network very similar to NERF, but it's a bit smaller. It makes it also a bit easier by using instead of raw color input, we use RGBD input. So we have a depth camera moving around a scene. And then to enable this, the Nerf thing that would take hours to train, to be trained in a few minutes and, and to work in real time, we also do some active sampling. So in each frame, we're choosing a set of pixels to, uh, to render. So the outcome of that is a Nerf-like system that can build a map of a room with you know reasonable quality. It's not sort of super high definition, but within a couple of minutes. And then what turned out to be interesting with, with that is there's a sort of automatic compression and coherence that happens when that network learns to represent a room. So one of the examples I remember, so in my, this was my student Edgar Sukai, in his room that he was uh, running this in, there was a football on the floor. And as this network that's representing the room trains, you see that the whole kind of representation kind of wobbles because the, you know stochastic gradient descent is going on around the weights of the network, but that is not causing just kind of uniform noise around the whole map. You actually see that certain things in the room sort of wobble in a really coherent way. So the football on the floor was like getting bigger and smaller in a very coherent way. So that sort of really indicated to me that there are probably not many weights in this network that are involved in representing the 3D shape and position of that ball. So maybe there's even one neuron, which is like the size of this, 
of the spherical part of that of that scene. That really indicated that there's a kind of automatic compression into a low dimensional kind of decomposition of this scene go- going on here. And so that led in our later work called Eye Label into a scene understanding system where all that you do is you add an extra output to your neural field that's representing this scene to represent semantic classes. So in fact, you add N extra outputs to, to, ind- to represent like, uh, you know, one hot semantic classes. And then at runtime, you give them very, very, very sparse supervision. So as a user, you you put a few clicks in the scene and say, this pixel is part of a wall, this pixel is part of a table. And then you ask it to predict, you know, what's the highest of all of those outputs for every part of the scene. And you get this remarkable spreading of those semantic indicators across objects, obeying boundaries uh, between objects. So somehow this decomposition into something a bit like a scene graph has, has automatically happened in that system. That's ongoing research, and I wouldn't immediately want to throw all my eggs in that basket. I remain very, very interested in more explicit representations as well. But that's been really fascinating for me to see. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, I think that also on the on the graphic side of things, you can see, you know, these amazing capabilities coming out of companies like that are creating the programs for Unreal Engine. So Epic Games, for example, or Blender, which is this open source capability or Unity. And you have these amazing graphics engines today, but they're not really leveraging the nerf capabilities at all, right? And so, like you said, there there's very interesting inherent kind of compression that we get from it and semantic control maybe that we can create using these nerf systems. But right now there is kind of a gap between the graphic side of things, this 3D explicit representation and the implicit representations that we get from nerf-like systems. I wonder if there's a sort of forking through most of my career, I, I would have said that this capability to move a camera around a scene and build a 3D representation is very common It's a single sort of technology and you should use essentially the same methods, whether you're interested in modeling accurate scenes that you're then going to use in a telepresence operation or whether it's a drone building a map of a scene because it wants to fly through the trees. And now maybe I see there's a bit of an interesting fork in the road where there's people who are interested in, you know, photorealistic modeling of, of scenes. And then there's the things that an embodied real-time device would would want to do. So to build a a representation which doesn't, you know, it can't capture all of that detail, but it captures somehow the semantic and geometric properties that are useful for what it actually needs to do. So NERF is really trying to go very hardcore there. It's 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 representing the, you know, the, the color and intensity of all of the light in the scene. And I don't think a, a robot needs that. So something much more implicit and and abstract. So another thing we've been working on is, is NERF-like networks that render feature maps rather than rendering explicit color could be a much more reasonable representation for robotics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And maybe diving back into robotics a bit, you know, I'm always interested in what are the kind of state-of-the-art capabilities of today and where are they progressing in Dyson in pretty much the state of 
of today's commercial robots. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the state of the current generation of of publicly available robots, and then and then maybe a, a bit about how you see this progressing in the next five years, next ten years. Yeah. So as I said, there are you know certain robot products that exist. So you know drones, ro- robot vacuum cleaners, th- things like that. I actually think then there's there's quite a big gap to other products that you might think about making. So in in indoor robotics, especially area I've been interested in, let's imagine you know general home help type of robot that could tidy up a room or, or something like that. So various companies have been interested in that. So D- Dyson that I continue to collaborate with are actively uh, uh, working in, in that area and, and doing some uh, yeah amazing stuff, a, bit, a big internal uh, research team that we collaborate with. But I think they and others w- would openly say th- these are very, very difficult problems. So manipulation especially is what you need to do almost almost anything in robotics that isn't just patrolling or or cleaning the floor, I would say progress in in manipulation has has been uh, harder than people expected. So definitely, there's been some progress recently, and you know, machine learning, reinforcement learning coming into robotics. You know, simulators being used to train algorithms. That's very uh, promising. Actually, there've been some real breakthroughs in things like quadruped walking in in the last year or two based on RL in simulation that have really surprised me, actually. But I think manipulation is still so hard because it's this meeting point of tricky hardware with advanced scene understanding that, that you need. So you just have to think for a second or mentally inspect yourself as you do something like pick up a pen and just all these kind of compound, complicated motions that you do just to remember how hard manipulation actually is. So some of the things we've seen in manipulation, you know, reinforcement learning has, has enabled, for instance, um, grasping of objects in quite a varied, cluttered situation. So things like the arm farm type of training that, that Google did showed that you could really train a robot to pick up lots of different objects. But mostly what that was about was picking up objects and dropping them. Whereas what if you want to pick up objects and actually use them? So I want to pick up an object and place it precisely in some place or use it as a tool to operate something else. I still think that motivates, you know, scene understanding capabilities that we don't quite have yet. So I I think that that may still be the hardest uh, part of uh, of robotics so tons of progress and and i think in in more robotics has always been useful in very controlled situations like factories and i'll see that 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 concept of what a controlled environment is will gradually become more and more general and we'll see robots that can have more freedom and, and roam around but the really general robot that you could expect to operate and do general things in your home, I, th- I think there's still a lot of uh, lot of work to do on that. Yeah, so that's super interesting. Pretty much in these unstructured environments that have a lot of uncertainty, a lot of noise, a lot of challenges, what I'm sensing is that we really need to be able to create a coherent understanding, scene understanding, understand really the whole full 3D space and the semantics of it, as well as some kind of physics 
based understanding. So it could be, you know, going back to the point on simulation, it could be the ability to simulate different changes in the scene or different manipulations to the scene before actually doing them in practice. But it seems like there needs to be also some kind of physics understanding here. And RL through simulation was able to kind of take this knowledge and insert it into these neural network-based systems uh, in a way. Do you see RL as really the leading way to go forward with robotics? These, for example, humanoid robotics, a few steps in the future, right? Is RL going to be one of the more promising directions or should we look towards other kind of methods as well? So I'm not an expert in in RL, though I've, I've worked with people who, who are, I think it's a, a super important component. I, I think when you've got a really kind of well-defined local task for which it's hard to design a solution, like a quadruped walking over bumpy ground, or let's say, you know, putting a peg in, in a hole that requires a lot of kind of force feedback and stuff, those are definitely the right areas to apply RL in. My, my instinct is that people have been reaching for RL a bit too generally in some other areas. So to think, for instance, that RL could solve a problem like moving a robot, you know, all the, all the way across a room and tidying up some objects on, on, a, on a desk seems too much to expect it to do. You just have to think of what do I actually expect this network to learn? And I think you're expecting that network to essentially solve a slam type problem build build a persistent representation of the of the scene and while that may work in in the long term you know at some scale of of, of network some scale of training data my instinct is let's do something more explicit for now for that kind of scene understanding part let's call our rl for lots of these you know more local highly sort of contact rich sort of uh, tasks that are just really hard to design controllers for simulation i think is just will will continue to be more and more important i'd I'd say that's another thing in my career that has crept up that i didn't necessarily expect just how useful and how good uh, simulation can be you know i I came from a background of most roboticists that i would say were very mistrustful of uh, of simulation and simulation can be not just about run a simulation beforehand train something on it and then run that network, you know, sim to real in the real world. I like the idea of, of real-time simulation. So as you're running your your system, there's there's the real world and what's going on. And then there's this kind of digital twin of that world. It's your hopefully always up-to-date simulation of, of whatever it is that's really there. And then that may allow you to map into behaviors that you've learned previously, you know, offline in the simulation, or you can actually do real-time simulation so here's you know some completely new object i've i've picked up and i want to figure out can i use this you know to manipulate this other object simulators are so good and so fast now you could just run a thousand decks real-time simulation try out a thousand different things see which one works and then actually execute it so yeah I'm, i'm very kind of bullish about simulation in general but for me still probably the hardest part is is that mapping from here's my real observations from a camera of the real world to get good enough knowledge to actually instantiate and keep up to date that that simulation for me that's the kind of slam part of it well yeah 
That's super interesting. And, and definitely there are so many parts that come together. And definitely the slam is, is one of the major, major pieces. Without it, you can't instantiate this simulation, like you're saying. And then these capabilities that require manipulation are going to be extremely hard, if not impossible to create. And so just on the like last question around robotics, do you see, let's say by 2030, for example, do you think we'll be able to to reach uh, like the uh, coffee test? What will a robot be able to walk into our house and uh, make coffee for us, uh, even if it's never been in that house? I would hope so. Yeah, it's always hard as a researcher to uh, jump out of that this local problems, that <laughs> linear thinking that you see, and try to remember that the long term is, you know, usually exponential progress. Yeah. I mean, as I sit here right now, that feels like long enough <laughs> that we might see some quite good progress. I made a bet with one of my friends who's also a researcher on a bowl of hummus that it's going to be possible by 2030. So I'm hoping for it. He thinks it's going to take at least till 2035. We'll see who's right. Maybe just diving back into the algorithms a bit, talking a little bit on classic versus deep learning, just recently went over global belief propagation. And I'd love to dive into it with you, if possible, a little bit on both when it is useful, what it does, and how it works. Yeah. So as you may have seen from some of my recent uh, talks and publications, yeah, belief propagation is something I'm incredibly uh, excited about at the moment. So that really came from thinking about the future of robotic applications and this interaction between algorithms and hardware, I think, is is so important and, it, and is un- under-discussed, actually. So through my career, I've seen how hardware coming along has completely changed the game. So I've seen that a few times. So one was definitely GPUs. So we, we'd been working with serial processors for all, most of my career up, up till about 2010, a little before that. And then we started to see people using GPUs for for vision. And in particular, it was some of the students in my lab. So Richard Newcomb, Steve Lovegrove, at the time, started to delve into things like real-time stereo using uh, GPU acceleration. And that became the key element of some of the first real-time dense SLAM systems that could actually build really detailed 3D uh, representations in in real time. So another technology that came along around that time was was depth cameras. So the Kinect camera uh, came out around that time, and it's hard to remember now that depth cameras were things we'd heard of before, but they cost thousands of pounds, and they were frankly not that good. And then suddenly you could go down to a local shop, a gaming shop, and and buy for a hundred pounds this really am- an amazing device. So that will continue to happen. And I think people are very much in a GPU mindset, especially at the moment, but that is a passing phase, I think. So so specifically talking about processors, I think we're at the dawn of, of a real sort of um, bursting onto the scene of lots of different ideas in, in how processors should work and especially processors for AI. And I think the long-term trend, it has to be towards parallelism. So you can't make single processors faster anymore, or it's too power hungry to do that anyway. So you have to embrace parallelism, but I think it will be generally a much more, you know, general heterogeneous parallelism than we're used to on GPUs at the moment, which are very good at doing the same thing all at the same time. So I think that 
you know, graph-like processing of thinking of many, many quite independent processing cores with their own memory and processing capability, and then graph-like connectivity that enables communication and, and message passing. I think that's where computing is is going. And that can happen, you know, within single chips. So there's a company in the the UK that I've been collaborating with called GraphCore, which has these amazing, uh, they call it an IPU, an intelligence processing unit. So it's a many core chip that has this kind of all-to-all communication capability and very general parallelism or across many, many devices. So another area we've become very interested in is many robot systems. So, th- so think about, you know, hundreds or, or thousands of independent robot devices or, or sensors or, or wearable units that might be within a space all with their own independent sensing and compute and storage capability and then some mesh-like communication that, that joins them all together. How do all of those devices actually coordinate to do things together? So my interest in, in belief propagation came out of thinking, you know, what sort of algorithms for spatial AI can I imagine working with that sort of compute infrastructure. So you have to give up on the idea of, you know, central memory. You have to give up on you know, building big matrices and inverting them and that kind of thing. So the, the standard algorithms that we use to solve geometric estimation problems in, in SLAM, that they can usually be thought of in terms of a, of a, of a factor graph, which is a big a graphical model that essentially describes all of the variables of interest and how they're connected together by observations. And there are very well-known algorithms for doing inference on, on, on factor graphs, which usually in, involve you know, efficient ways to invert big matrices. But, but belief propagation in, allows you a way to do inference on factor graphs in a purely distributed message-passing way. And what I've become especially interested in is Gaussian belief propagation, which is where you make the assumption that most of the probabilities you're interested in are Gaussian most of the time. But actually, it's it's general enough to be really useful because you can use it with nonlinear factors and you can use it with robust uh, kernels, which are the same sort of assumptions we use all the time in in SLAM-type type problems. So this paradigm, where are we like right now with respect to the research? Is this one of the earlier kind of methodologies that you see working in such a way? Or is this something that you're bringing back from a while back? Yeah, in, in my view, it, it's an algorithm that's existed since, since the 80s, has definitely had periods of, of strong interest from, from researchers, but has been out of favor recently. And that may be for good reasons that it doesn't it work that well <laughs> in the end. We don't quite quite know yet. I, I think it, work, it it should work well, but I I think one of the key reasons could be just that the hardware paradigm we've been in has not suited that that style of algorithm, and, and other things come to the fore. It's not a sensible algorithm to use on a CPU necessarily. There are more efficient things to do, and not necessarily on on a GPU either, except for some uh, kind of special cases. So at the moment, it's, I think, re-emerging as a niche. You know, it's largely been me and a small gr- group of people who've, who've been trying to, uh, uh, to tell this story and, and, and show more and more things that we can do with it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just really interested to see how, how it will go. And 
you know, what we've been trying to do recently is is just try different things with with this. So we did bundle adjustments running on 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 this GraphCore IPU. We've done many robot systems. We had a paper called Robot Web, which is many robot uh, localization system. We've also done uh, many robot planning application to show that you can use this, for, for instance, for traffic flows through a junction using peer-to-peer communication where all of these individual robots or, or vehicles, you want them to do coordinated planning so that they move through each other smoothly and to show that you can actually do that really well without necessarily needing a central base station. Another thing that we've done in trying to just sort of push this idea out there, so with with my student uh, Joe Ortiz, we've we wrote an, an online in- interactive article. It's called a, a visual introduction to, to Gaussian belief propagation. So in in the style of the online journal Distill. So so yeah, I, I think the way publishing is is happening at the moment is also pretty interesting. That there's always various ways to to get your ideas. Uh, out there, which aren't necessarily just scientific papers. Definitely. We'll, we'll also link to that. I also uh, checked it out before beforehand, and it's it's very, very cool, very visual, easy to understand. So I, I highly recommend uh, checking that out. Definitely. And do you see any connection here with um, cellular automata in any way? This yeah. is also one of those kind of crazy and super interesting ideas and concepts that have not really made it to a lot of real world production capabilities, but is also fascinating to think about what is possible through those kind of systems. Yeah. I think there's a really close link. What interests me about cellular automata is it, you know, it's an interesting distributed computational machine. So every cell is is doing its own thing and on each step is receiving some information about its local environment. So for me, that's exactly this the same sort of assumption that that excites me about uh, about belief propagation. So there's been these brilliant, uh, again, online distilled papers recently on on learning cellular automata from from Alex uh, Mordvintsev, especially that I've been absolutely uh, fascinated by. So what he's really been looking at is how can you learn the local rules that would work work on a cellular automaton such that interesting global behavior emerges, like being able to create a picture or be able to do uh, classification. And actually, we're, we're actively working now on, on similar things, so possibly in a somewhat more general way based on general graphs and thinking about how, how belief propagation really folds into that as well. So can you actually design a general learning capability into these fact graphs that we then optimize with a bit of belief propagation. So I actually think there might be a very interesting way to, to redesign or to think of a new, a new type of deep learning, if you like, that, that uh, copies to some extent the structures that we know are useful in, in deep learning. So I think deep learning, what's really interesting about it is this massive over-parameterization of, of what you're trying to, to learn. And when you train a neural network a lot of what's going on is kind of pruning away stuff that doesn't do anything useful to discover the bits the bits that do. I don't see why we shouldn't design a, a factor graph that has a similar sort of structure, but where instead of weights that we train, we have variables that we're trying to infer. And as you 
optimize that factor graph, you sort of switch parts of it on and off in a way that's quite similar to neural network training, but which might have really nice properties. And, and I think the property I'm most interested in is how that might enable you know, much better continual learning. Because I think in, in a lot of our experience in in SLAM and spatial AI of trying to, you know, put neural network methods, you know, together with the estimation stuff that we normally have. So we normally don't just have a standalone neural network. We're trying to connect it to some SLAM system. So we might have a neural network that's predicting the depth of single images, but we want to then use that over multiple views and fuse them all to, to estimate a, the 3D shape of a room. It's always been hard to do that, in partly because we don't really understand the uncertainty coming out of neural networks properly. So everything in my background says, if you want to do that continual estimation properly, you know, be Bayesian, be probabilistic, understand the uncertainty on everything, then you know exactly the right way to, you know, weight everything properly, such, such that you don't become over or under confident. And and that's been difficult because neural networks are not. Bayesian. And then if we think about systems that, you know, the properties we would actually like for our robot are not that you would pre-train it completely and then just set it in the world and it has to run. We would like it to be able to learn in situ. You know, there will be things about this scene I'm in now, objects I've never seen before. They didn't exist in my training set, you know, priors about the shape of this scene that I should really learn and use locally. So how can we build networks that can learn continually in that proper way? And making them more more Bayesian seems like the right thing to do to me. And there's a possibility that this sort of, you know, factor graph and, and belief propagation type idea might enable that. So that's something we're working on. That's incredible. And, and you know, you can clearly see kind of this unique background and a lot of like vast knowledge of the space and all of the modern methodologies coming together towards this new potential paradigm. And I think that it's, it's, it's amazing to see these things at, at an early stage before, you know, everything works and it's, it's all just uh, applications. To see it at such an early stage, I think, is, is extremely powerful. I mean, conceptually, the ideas make a ton of sense. And of course, the hardware lottery that we got today is one big parameter on, on the methods and the way that the methods were developed up to now. And so looking forward, looking at how the hardware is going to be evolving, and then together with that, understanding the future of these algorithms and what can be done, what should be done. I think this is incredible, incredible work. I'd love to maybe finish off with a final uh, kind of question. We ask all of our guests to provide a recommendation for the younger generation, the next folks that are coming into the space of computer vision, of machine learning, what should they be maybe doing, studying, focusing on uh, that will help them out in their careers? Yeah, great question. I've listened to a couple of your your former in interviews and, and heard some really great suggestions there. I definitely ag agree with the idea that keeping your background broad and maybe doing something un unusual early on is a great thing to do, you know, so study physics or some type of engineering that doesn't necessarily seem like uh, machine learning, but that will give you a, you know, a unique angle. Definitely. I think there's a, some sort of group think going on <laughs> at the moment in, in, a, in our field, particularly focused around deep, deep learning where, 
yeah, there are quite a lot of people who can only sort of think of one way to, to attack a problem and, and, and giving yourself more, more breadth can really help there. I think it's important to try and keep an eye on things that will actually be useful one day. And, and I, I feel like I've always done that, but I don't quite know where that instinct came from. So a, a vision that you're working on something that you can imagine at least being part of, of some you know, long-term solution. And I think another thing that I often say to, to students is, are you sure you're working on the hardest part of the, of the problem here? So there's really long-term challenges like making a robot that could tidy a kitchen. There's many things that need to be solved there. And yes, maybe it's true that the localization system, for instance, we could make it a few percent better. And, and I'm not saying that's not worthwhile work, but it's not really the deal breaker at the moment in terms of actually allowing that. So probably the deal breaker is um, you know, manipulation, for instance. So that's probably the most important thing to work on and, and where you'd have the most chance to make uh, impact in your in your career. Or even there might be quite things to do that might seem quite orthogonal to what other people are doing. So we're used to seeing these tables in papers that are all kind of saturated on on benchmarks for some sort of accuracy. But then you might consider, but for that algorithm to actually be useful, let's say in an application like ARVR, it's probably got to be a thousand times more efficient than it is now. So why you know why not work on that in, instead? And and it can be hard to work on things like that because other people might not really agree that it's important or or interesting. So you kind of have to have the the faith, I think, to to stick at something like that for a while. But I do believe that if you're really working on something which ultimately is important to the application, then the time will come when people will be be interested in that and, and you'll get the credit you deserve if you've done something good there. Amazing, amazing. So keeping it broad and really focusing on the hardest parts of the problem, focusing on the most interesting bottlenecks right now and understanding that things take time, I think is also a big takeaway that I have from this. Uh, things take time, but if you are working on the interesting part, it will converge and come together. Andrew, thank you very, very much for your time. It was a pleasure talking. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you. This is Unboxing AI. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe. If you want to learn about computer vision and understand where the future of AI is going, stay tuned. We have some amazing guests coming on. It's going to blow your minds.